This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Today we're going to cover the book Chengis Khan and the Making of the Modern World by Jack Weatherford, a revisionist history of the Mongol Empire and its founder. As for who recommended the book, for that I'm going to hand it off to Eric. And this would be Damon John, who uh, apparently is on the Shark Tank. I've, I've not seen that show, but um, his Twitter feed is the Shark Damon, uh, at the Shark Damon. You can also find him at Damon John. DamonJohn.com. He's the CEO and founder of FUBU, which is um, that's or pretty much all. You, that's pretty much all you wear, right, Jason? Uh, yeah, but that, that that was a while a while ago. I've I've had to get a, a different wardrobe since I, I you know the whole since university teaching thing and getting oh, married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah so he p- appears on Shark Tank and uh, more about this book. Uh, so in that section of of Tools of Titans, Ferris says that uh, the last. Genghis Khan book has been recommended to me by seven, several billionaires. And well, uh, Jason, I know you pronounce it, it Chengis. It, it is properly pronounced Chengis, not Genghis. It, this is unfortunately uh, due to a spelling issue in, in rendering the Mongol language into English. Yes, it is properly GIF, not GIF. <laughs> it is a graphical user interface, not a giraffical this is not a long-necked user interface, <laughs> but it is actually Genghis Khan, or actually, properly, it would be Genghis Khan. So, like, like a ch is is closer to uh, how that's pronounced in Mongolian. And when you read uh, most Mongolian historians or many Mongolian historians, they actually spell it uh, fairly fairly significantly different uh, differently. Uh, something you know, oftentimes you'll see a spelling more like chingis. Something like mm-hmm. that, which is closer to how it would be pronounced. Chingis. Okay. Okay. Well, the author of this book is Jack Weatherford. Jack. Professor. Jack Weatherford. <laughs> <laughs> did we, uh, did, did the, uh, his name get mispronounced as well? Yeah. Well, rendering it into English, English from, yeah, English. Yeah, from, from English from the American. Mongolian. He's a professor of anthropology at, uh, McAllister College. McAllister. In- Oh, gosh. Let's keep that one in there. Um, <laughs> from the great state and the best state of Minnesota. Minnesota. He's yeah. a specialist in tribal people. Conducted quite a bit of in-country research for this book. Five years. In 2006, he was awarded the Order of the Polar Star, which is Mongolia's highest national honor for foreigners even better than the order of the polar bear (laughs) he now divides his time between living in mongolia and a small city called charleston in the great state of south carolina well i can understand why he would go back and forth because if you split your time just right the 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 uh, the weather in the two is almost exactly alike right (laughs) yeah (laughs) (sighs) All right, let's go ahead and get to our uh, overview and initial reactions here. 
you go ahead and start with yours because uh, right. we're going to have some back and forth on this based on what I'm seeing from show notes. Yeah, yeah. So this should be good. So uh, Weatherford starts off the book by saying that he gets access to these secret histories that uh, are just recently found, I guess, uh, about, about Mongolia and, and about uh, Genghis Khan. And, uh, and he travels extensively throughout modern-day Mongolia to, to research this book. Uh, my, my initial reaction was I was stunned, and mostly because I, I did not know pretty much any of this. I mean, the, the, only, the only thing I ever knew about Chinggis Khan was a rumor that a certain percentage of people in the world can trace uh, DNA back to him because— he had so many, um, so many, uh, children by, by different people, by, uh, by different women. So I, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's really like going into this book. That's all I knew. Um, my pitiful education growing up in school was all Europe focused. And, and so we never got to anything uh, about Mongolia or, or Chinggis Khan. And so I, I didn't know a lot about him. And, uh, so reading through this book, it, I mean, each chapter was just kind of, a. uh, I, I, at the, at the end of the chapter, I would write in the notes, I didn't know any of this. And so it, it was very interesting to me in, in, in that sense. Yeah. There's, there's some speculation that, uh, approximately one in 200 human beings alive today is descended from good old Chinggis. Wow. But, uh, yeah, there's, um, you know, that's, that's pretty decent, but there's <laughs> at least other, at least 10 other past historical figures who seem to uh, have been of, of similar uh, potency in that regard. So, uh, you know, there's, there's that, but, um, but yeah, how about that? <laughs> well, so I was stunned by, uh, by what I learned, but um, I've, I'm hearing, I'm hearing that uh, what I learned may not have been all that accurate. Yeah. So my response to the book was that I was entertained. It's extraordinarily well written. Uh, and you know, it's a, it's a terrific audio book, by the way, the audible version of this is, is, uh, I think well done, but I was also very disappointed in the quality of the historiography here. Now I'll preface this by saying that I am a historian, but I'm not a Mongol historian. So I must uh, defer to those who are truly Mongol historians for full evaluation of many parts of the book. But there are lots of parts of the book that I am fully qualified to evaluate. And in many of those and in many of the sorts of statements that he makes, well, let's just say he's less than accurate in many cases. And in a lot of cases, it's more it's more a matter of exaggeration or ignorance, whether willful or just simple ignorance. Uh about stuff that either preceded, and most of the time it's preceded, but either preceded or uh, uh, came after the Mongols. So, you know, the, the bottom line is that Weatherford is is not a historian. He's an anthropologist, and it does show. And, you know, it's it's pretty clear to me that he caught Mongol fever when he got to Mongolia. He was, he went, he admittedly went over to research something else, right? He went over, according to the book, to research uh, basically some economics stuff from an anthropological angle. 
and then wound up falling in love, as he confesses, with the, uh, the, the, the Mongol history that he came across and with the figure of Chinggis Khan. And from there, uh, th- this book uh, grew. Well, the problem is, had he been more of a, uh, of a historian, some of the stuff that he got so excited about wouldn't have been especially new to him. He would have known it from other places that, you know, in some cases, the things that he credits the Mongols with had been had been done thousands of years earlier. Uh, and in some cases, you know, some of the things that he credits them with or that he takes sources at, at face value on, uh, you know, he's I think he's too credulous. So uh, and then there are a number of places where it very much seemed to me that he was reading American values and some class struggle concepts that are, you know, very 20th century, early 21st century type things. Uh, you could even argue going back to the 19th century, a lot of those things. He's reading those values back into Mongol history in some cases. So for example, he, he wants to, throughout the book, set the Mongols up over and against the intolerant backwards Europeans and also, just to a lesser degree, the uh, culturally dominant and you know uh, very technologically oriented uh, Islamic peoples of the of the Middle East uh, or the Near East, I suppose. Uh, he wants to set them up against those peoples, you know, who he still regards as 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 backwards, as closer to moderns, right? So he says, for example. Without deep cultural preferences in these areas, the Mongols implemented pragmatic rather than ideological solutions. They searched for what worked best, and when they found it, they spread it to other countries. They did not have to worry about whether their astronomy agreed with the precepts of the Bible, or that their standards of writing followed the classical principles taught by the mandarins of China, or that Muslim imams disapproved of their printing and painting. The Mongols had the power, at least temporarily, to impose new international systems of technology, agriculture, and knowledge that superseded the predilections or prejudices of any single civilization, and in so doing, they broke the monopoly on thought exercised by the local elites. And elsewhere you see... They also created the nucleus of a universal culture and world system. This new global culture continued to grow long after the demise of the Mongol Empire, and through continued development over the coming centuries, it became the foundation for the modern world system. With the original Mongol emphases on free commerce, open communication, shared knowledge, secular politics, religious coexistence, international law, and diplomatic immunity. So those are all Mongol, original Mongol emphases that, that apparently the, uh, you know, that's where we, we all got those things from. But there are, uh, there are a lot of problems here. First of all, the, the, the biggest problems in terms of astronomy w- wasn't uh, disagreeing with the precepts of the Bible in the, mid- in the Middle Ages. It had more to do with disagreeing with Aristotle and some of the, some of the philosophers that they were dependent on at that time. Uh, there's not a whole lot about it, of astronomy that uh, is in the Bible for for what it's worth, um, and uh, you know th- this whole idea of you know the Muslim imams holding back printing and painting and all of this, 
have you seen like the level of literacy? I mean, he does mention at, at another point in the book, he talks about the, um, the amazing literacy of the uh, Muslim peoples in, in the time just preceding the Mongols. And, and in large part, the Mongols depended on these Muslim Muslim peoples for to, to propagate a lot of the, the, the literature and so on that they, that they move forward with. So he likes to hold up the, these Mongols as, you know, over and against these backwards, non-secular, religious conservatives who had to learn from these open-minded, pragmatic Mongols that really moving towards a perspective that's closer to 21st century globalism would really be best. And as soon as you start to see that kind of rhetoric in a history, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. But it should cause your BS antenna to go up a little bit. And it should cause you to go, wait a second, this sounds an awful lot like someone is identifying modern traits or characteristics that are close to the modern author's uh, views. And perhaps it's very possible that these are being read back into the sources or into the figures by the modern figure. And, you know, this is a common problem, say, with, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the, the historical Jesus studies that you see done. I mean, one of the famous books in, uh, uh, in religious studies, for example, back at the beginning of the 20th century was The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer, who observed that all of these lives of Jesus that purported to give the, the true historical figure behind the, you know, underlying this, you know, the, the religious veneer presented by the Gospels, that this historical Jesus that these 19th century, uh, mostly German scholars were, were, uh, were discovering looked an awful lot like each German scholar that was doing the study. And he says, you know, they look down the long well of history and they see their own faces shining back at them. And I'm afraid that in many cases... Weatherford appears to have looked down the long well of history and seen his face looking back at him when considering Chinggis Khan and some of these other figures and, and the Mongol, the Mongol uh, ideology to begin with, uh, or overall. I think that's sort of what's happening here in many places. Now, there are places where he's right, that they, that they did take this approach, but they weren't unique in that. And that's, I think, the important point to, to understand as we, as, as, as you go through this book, if you do read it. Well, let, let me ask you one question. Have, have you read other things about Genghis Khan and, and the Mongols? Nothing really ma major or massive. I've read some, some interactions with this book. Uh, and certainly I, 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 uh, listened to, uh, to Dan Carlin's Wrath of the Khan series, which depends upon, uh, Mongol historians, uh, who are much more uh, circumspect and, and more trained as historians than Weatherford. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm familiar in some aspects, but I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm certainly not uh, conversant in that, in that area of history as much. It's the stuff on the edges that I'm much more familiar with, you know, things well, in the, yeah. you know, in the eras that are touching the Mongols uh, yeah. that I'm more, I'm more familiar with and some stuff that comes obviously a lot earlier. Yeah. Well, and the reason I ask is, is one thing that I wondered about the whole time while reading this book, because he'll, he'll present almost complete meetings 
uh, the conversation that, that are going on in meetings and is, was this already known or was this supposed to have supposedly to have come from the secret histories or is he just making it up like what he thinks would have been said in these it's a little meetings. bit of, it's a little bit of, of the last two so for the most part the parts having to do with Chinggis Khan and the and his children he's depending upon the document the secret history of the Mongols okay uh, which is it's it's a it's the earliest uh, the, the oldest Mongolian language book or work that we have. Uh, it's preserved in in Chinese characters, but in Mongolian in the Mongolian language, and uh, it, you know it it was originally transcribed into modern Mongolian back in the early 20th century. So I mean, this okay. is not something that's super new, right? Now, but he he presents it that the 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 communists hid it for a while. Yeah, when it, they that, when they took over Mongolia, yeah, and then, that's and then true. it was just re released recently. That's true. I mean, the 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 the. Uh, it depends on what you mean by recently. I mean, 1985 uh, was when, if I if I remember correctly, uh, when the uh, the uh, Rashkovitz uh, uh, or Rashkovitz uh, 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 translation of it came out uh, with you know all eleven you know he did eleven volumes of it. I think it was in 1985 that that was completed, uh, and then uh, it was re released as a two volume set in 2003. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that's, that's there. Uh, but you know, again, this is not, uh, this is not something that was complete, that's completely new and it largely, uh, uh, it largely depends upon the accounts in the secret history for those sorts of things. And then with, you know, the license of a historical novel, it, you know, Weatherford writes in, you know, this is what they were saying. You know, he's, he's, he's filling in some gaps there on this is how this is going. So mm-hmm. anyhow. Okay. Well, I just had one other thing in, in the overview and then we, we hit into the uh, quotes there. Um, it is a relatively short book, uh, especially compared to some of the other ones that have, that have been <laughs> certainly in, in more our, shorter our than the last here. one. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it was really funny because some of the civilizations would be covered in a paragraph. It's like, uh, the Mongols came, they saw, they conquered these civilizations, and that's that's the paragraph. But you, you kind of wonder, like, well, what what did these what were these civilizations like? What did they did they have written language? Did they have history, or are they just kind of of subsumed within the the Mongol onslaught, and and we don't know anything about them, and we never will. Um, so uh, interesting in that sense. But yeah, just in terms of the amount of history covered. It's a, it's a pretty short book. Yeah, no doubt. If, if you're planning planning to read it, yeah. If so. you're planning to read it, although again, uh, I would suggest perhaps reading some of the some of the others, perhaps like the Mongols by David Morgan, which is not as um, fun of a read, but you know has more you know reliable history. If you're actually interested in the history, now if you're interested in you know some things to challenge way various ways of thinking and to think about, you know, modern culture from a slightly different angle, then, you know, this can be a pretty effective book. So, you know, but we'll talk about that more in our, in our closing, closing thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll start with, um, my first quote and it's not, it's not from, uh, Jack Weatherford, but it is from the father of Indian independence. He said, Alexander and Caesar seem petty before him. And him referring to Genghis Khan, of course. So, 
I, I learned about Alexander and learned about Caesar in school, but never, never got into uh, Chinggis Khan. So they, those two seem petty before what Chinggis Khan accomplished. Yeah, there are a lot of favorite quotes, once again, mostly not actually from Weatherford himself, uh, but, you know, various uh, things either attributed to, a number of them are from Weatherford, but things attributed to uh, uh, Temujin or uh, to Genghis Khan. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, th- then there are some, some, some favorites for a couple different reasons. One is just for the insight. Others are for the humor. I'm going to go ahead and start with the humor. To the Mongols, the farmers' fields were just, were just grasslands, as were the gardens, and the peasants were like grazing animals rather than real humans who ate meat. As a nearly carnivorous, nearly exclusively carnivorous human, <laughs> I, I, I read this and kind of went, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yep, yeah, mm-hmm. That's funny. All right, my next one is the Mongols directly attacked the Chinese cultural prejudice that ranked merchants as merely a step above robbers by officially elevating their status ahead of all religion and prof- all religions and professions, second only to government officials. In a further degradation of Confucian scholars, the Mongols reduced them from the highest level of traditional Chinese society to the ninth level, just below prostitutes but above beggars. Well, I mean, they they got that going for them. <laughs> so they rearranged um, some cultural levels there. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go uh, to another uh, little episode for humor here. Also, well, a little bit, little bit of humor and a little bit of other. This is a confrontation between uh, Temujin, uh, Genghis Khan, and his mother, uh, working herself into e- into ever greater anger against her eldest son. She sat down cross-legged, ripped open her deal and pulled out her breasts that were now so old, wrinkled, and worn from nourishing five children that according to the secret history, even as she held them up in her hands, they still rested on her knees. (laughs) Yeah, all right. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and then, then of course, she has more to say uh, that... Also is you know is kind of uh, kind of kind of horrifying as well. Have you seen these? She demanded angrily of Chenghis Khan as he she held up her withered breasts with both hands. These are the breasts that you sucked, and then goes into a long tirade against her son. Uh, yeah, okay, well that's a an entertaining. It, it gives you an illustration of how entertaining this book can be at various points, and, and may this movie never be made. And, yeah, and of the strong women. Yes, the women, culture. the women throughout this, as as is the case in in most actual historical events, women are very much a large portion of steering the sh- steering the historical ship uh, throughout the throughout the narrative. And I will give credit where credit is due on that. Yeah. All right. My next quote comes from a, a section of the book where they're talking about a big meeting between Muslims, Christians, Buddhists. All, all put together by the the Mongols, of course. And so here here starts the quote. No side seemed to convince the other of anything. Finally, as the effects of the alcohol became stronger, the Christians gave up trying to persuade anyone with logical arguments and resorted to singing. 
The Muslims, who did not sing, responded by loudly, loudly reciting the Quran in an effort to, to drown out the Christians, and the Buddhists retreated into silent meditation. At the end of the debate, unable to convert or kill one another, they concluded the, most, the way most Mongol celebrations <laughs> concluded, with everyone simply too drunk to continue. Yep. <laughs> so there's, uh, there's some, some religious uh, try, trying, to, trying to combine the religions and didn't, didn't work out that well. Yeah. All right. So uh, my next one, very short one. To be a just Mongol, one had to live in a just community. And I, I really liked the uh, that section actually. Uh, there, there are a lot of um, parallels actually, and I, I'm not sure whether it's deliberate or not in how he wrote this. But there are a lot of parallels. Maybe the most interesting thing about this book to me was that there were a lot of parallels between uh, Genghis Khan and uh, David in the way that the Hebrew Bible portrays him and how he. Uh, generally speaking, by historians, is understood. Uh, then uh, also Kublai, then and Solomon, David's son. Uh, also, a lot of similarities there, uh, and then uh, a number of similarities in terms of the these nomadic cultures and tribal cultures and the way that they wind up getting legal codes and how the how the codes actually work. There's a lot of different parallels between the Jewish Torah and what we see, you know, Weatherford presents as something unusual, actually, in the Mongol uh, world. And he actually mentions at one point that the Mongols were, uh, that, um, that many Mongols had, Christ- had converted to Christianity in part because the, 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 uh, the Hebrew Bible, the pastoralism of the Hebrew Bible really made a lot of sense to them because, you know, the, the herdsmen and the the nomadic uh, tribal cultures, just, you know, a lot of stuff just plugged right in and made sense. Well, a lot of different things in the codification of Chinggis Khan's law actually looked very, very similar to how things were codified and, and put together in the Jewish law. And I wonder to what degree that uh, was was actually the result of factors from Christianity and other and, and uh, Islam and you know so many of his most trusted associates were Muslims or Christians who had that background and I wonder to what degree that that influenced it but anyway that to be a just Mongol one had to live in a just community bit uh, that's at the end of a longer paragraph where where Weatherford says Mongol law as codified by Chinggis Khan recognized group responsibility and group guilt. The solitary individual had no legal existence outside of the context of the family and the larger units to which it belonged. Therefore, the family carried the responsibility of ensuring the correct behavior of its members. A crime by one could bring punishment to all. Similarly, a tribe or a squad of soldiers bore the same liability for one another's actions, and thereby the entire nation, not just the army or just the civil administration, bore responsibility for upholding and enforcing the law. To be a just Mongol, one had to live in a just community. Now, this is one place where Americans tend to take a very different view mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, how justice works and, you know, the, the whether, you know, individual responsibility versus societal responsibility and so on. Uh, but this is actually very close to what we find in a lot of early Hebrew Bible sources. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that uh, periodically students struggle with at the university level when they start reading through biblical texts is things like the stoning of Achan, or often pronounced Achan, in uh, in uh, the book of Joshua. 
that when he commits uh, a, a, a crime, not only he, but his entire family is stoned with rocks and, uh, and, and put to death. And it's like, well, wait, why, why, why is this whole family put to death? This is why. It's because this is the, 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 the way that under, the, under that type of tribal legal system, it works. Now, it's, uh, this is also reminiscent of another quote that is, that's not from this book that actually uh, comes from a book on the Hebrew prophets by Abraham Heschel, which I highly recommend, uh, where he says, the prophets, above all, the prophets remind us of the moral state of a people. Few are guilty, but all are responsible. If we admit that the individual is in some measure conditioned or affected by the spirit of society, an individual's crime discloses society's corruption. In a community not indifferent to suffering, uncompromisingly impatient with cruelty and falsehood, continually concerned for God and every man, crime would be infrequent rather than common. And it's the same basic concept that if you want to be, if you want to be a just individual, it starts with a just community around you. And if we are seeing unjust individuals or crimes being committed, then we need to look at what has gone wrong, where the society or where the larger community that produced that individual is sick. Sounds like the, the thing you highlighted last week with the, the soldier in China in, uh, in Once an Evil. Oh, yes, yes. Where he became what his society want or, or uh, praised but it, it was he, he was a horrible human being what he <laughs> what he had become and it kind of made me think of that of, of uh, society's responsibility but but even the things that society praises that can uh, that can also impact it yep but All that's right. really interesting that, that that point you brought up yeah, and, and, it, and it applies across a, a number of different things. And again, it, it's very similar to what we see in the Hebrew Bible. And among the Mongols at that time, they were heavily influenced by many Mongols, including Genghis Khan, who was not a Christian himself, but was very influenced by Christian wives and by uh, Christian advisors and Muslim advisors. Uh, you have to think that some of this, some of the, uh, some of those things filtered into the way that he he codified his law. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, Weatherford doesn't really address it all. But anyway, there's a lot of different parallels that were interesting. Yeah. All right. Next one. All right. My last one here. Um, after, after the Mongol, this is after Chinggis Khan's time, but, but the Mongols, uh, conquer Baghdad. So no other non-Muslim troops would conquer Baghdad or Iraq again until the arrival of the American and British forces in 2003. Yeah. And of course the so are you are you highlighting that because you're pointing out that the quote is just patently false or no i i i i didn't know yeah but it's the, the 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 quote is false the the fact okay. is fact is wrong so who like who else went in then the british in 1917 in world war 1 okay so the 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 british troops in Bag, uh, captured baghdad in 1917 during world war 1 okay so, but, but would that have been the first people since the Mongols? Um, yeah, I believe so. So, nineteen seventeen, yeah. Okay. But you know, it was under largely Mongol control, or you know, directly or indirectly for a while after that. So, mm-hmm. but yeah. Um, but yeah, the Weatherford once again doesn't quite have his history right. There's a lot of those little hiccups throughout. It's irritating. Yeah. Anyway, um, 
couple others from me. Um, <laughs> a quote uh, that, uh, oh, well, another funny episode. Uh, so Hulagu, after, uh, after taking Baghdad, uh, he, uh, he takes the caliph and he, uh, basically has, he gives him no food or water for a few days for, I think three days as this, as the story goes. And then, uh, it says, uh, pointing to ma- to the massive piles of wealth looted from the city, Hulagu, re- uh, uh, re- reportedly, uh, ordered the caliph to eat the gold. And when he could not scolded him for so greedily accumulating wealth instead of building an army to defend himself. That's brutal. Pretty oh, you're good, hungry. Yeah. Why don't you eat your gold? <laughs> <laughs> well, kind of another biblical reference there too, though, right? Yeah, I, where he I, had him eat, perhaps, the, or drink the gold. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the, the uh, you're talking about Moses. Yeah, yeah. Um, then uh, let's see. Uh, this quote that was attributed to apocryphally attributed to uh, Genghis Khan, uh, and Weatherford appropriately notes that this is unlikely to actually be from Khan, but uh, from Genghis himself. Uh, But uh, the greatest joy a man can know is to conquer his enemies and drive them before him, to ride their horses and take away their possessions, to see the faces of those who are dear to them bedewed with tears, and to clasp their wives and daughters in his arms. (laughs) It reminds me, actually, of Conan the Barbarian. You know the 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 uh, the, the quotes in Conan the Barbarian about the the, the greatest thing in, in life. Uh, but this brings me to my next my next uh, quote, and this is something that I think Weatherford gets absolutely right, and it's really important to understand. Propaganda and control of public opinion were quickly emerging as Temujin's primary weapons of choice. So, the Mongols understood that it was better to win without blood, without bloodshed. If you could get everybody terrified of you without having to fight them and they would just submit to you, then that would be all the better. So Chinggis used propaganda and he wanted people to think that he had said such, <laughs> such things. He, he, he encouraged it. And so then, uh, you know, it, it further Weatherford says terror, he realized was best spread not by acts of warriors, but by the pens of scribes and scholars in an era before newspapers, the letters of the intelligentsia played a primary role in shaping public opinion, and in the conquest of Central Asia, they played their role quite well on Genghis Khan's behalf. But see, now we have newspapers, blogs, all sorts of things that, again, shape the, 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 the public opinion and are the primary agents of terror in this world. Mm-hmm. The media is constantly stirring up all sorts of emotions, generally negative emotions, because those sell... Uh, and, and, you know, that does more to stir up unrest than anything that anybody is doing with violence at this point. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. worth noting. And uh, a final two from me. So I, as usual, I have a couple extras. Uh, Chinggis Khan's, in Weatherford's report, words to his, his sons. It will be easy, he explained, to forget your vision and purpose once you have fine clothes, fast horse at cars, horses and beautiful women in that case you will be no better than a slave and you will surely lose everything that's great advice yeah once you have great you know nice clothes fast cars and beautiful women if you if you if you let that become your focus you'll be no better than a slave to those things of course and then you will surely lose it all 
once again, the Chinggis Khan seemed to understand the difference between first things and second things in, in this, in the way he's characterized throughout here. And I think that's probably true. Um, well, and, and it, but it, it was interesting in, in, he had some great sayings, but it, when he was trying to get him to his, his sons, it's like it was too late. Or, or that's how it, how uh, Weatherford presented it is like, and it seems to have been the case. And that would not he would not yeah. be the first great man of history for whom that was the case. I mean, actually, again, lots of biblical parallels there. From even you could look at David with his children. You could look at, uh, uh, and of course, uh, other examples in uh, in First Samuel with you know uh, Eli who gives way to Samuel, and then Samuel has the same problem with his children. And these guys are so busy doing great things for everybody else that then their kids end up being pretty rotten and mm -hmm. ends up that way for Chinggis Khan as well. Yeah. Then finally, to you, uh, God has given the scriptures and you Christians don't, do not observe them. And then he cited as evidence that the, that the Christians eagerly placed money ahead of justice. And I'll just leave it at that. Ouch. Yeah. And that was uh, Chinggis speaking. No, that was not Chinggis. That was, uh, yeah. uh, uh, I think it was, uh, that was uh, a monk, monkicon, a monkicon, monkicon. Okay, yeah, monk, monk. Sorry. All right, so uh, time to get into the nitty gritty here. Uh, lots of spoiler stuff. Although I, I don't think that this is really a book that you have to worry about spoiling. Um, I mean, it's got some interesting narrative and, and so on, and it's extraordinarily well written, but I don't think this is one of those things that, you know, you, you have to worry about spoilers for. So, you know, you can listen on if you haven't, haven't heard the book. So nitty gritty, uh, more detailed stuff. So uh, let's, let's go ahead and get into it. Yeah, and, and I, I just wanted to start off with things that I, that I learned. Like I said at the beginning, I, di I didn't know anything. So uh, pretty much everything was, was a, a learning experience, um, and, and I can have you tell me if these were, were actually the case or not, but here, here are some things that, that stuck out to me. Um, I was really surprised at the number of Christians who were Mongols. Very true. Uh, and then also of the Christian elements of the administration, uh, whenever, whenever a soldier was, was lost, uh, the loot from whoever they just took over, uh, the they would give that the booty. They would give that to the orphans and widows of the lost soldier. Um, so they, they took care of the orf orphans and widows, which is a, a very prominent thing in, in Christian Christianity. Um, there was a 10% tax, which I like that because if, uh, like a tithe of 10%, uh, I don't think well, government should tithe, take any more than that. Tithe actually technically means 10%. Yeah. Yeah. Why, but, why, why should uh, government then, not take more than that? If, if uh, you know, if you have a multi-billionaire, ten percent is very different than it is ten percent for uh, someone who only has a hundred dollars to their name. I think progressive tax makes makes a lot of sense. I, I say keep it equal. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 um, I'll just say this: Jesus seems to disagree in the New Testament with that concept, but but it is a percentage. Not in the New Testament, no. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So in, yeah. in the in the uh, biblical era, you have uh, you know in the uh, ancient, ancient Israelite era, you have the the ten percent tithe that is to be kept and then taken to Jerusalem and eaten, uh, at, you know on a on a yearly basis, and then every third year you you take that and you support the uh, the local Levites and and the poor with it instead of eating it. 
but and then you had other mandatory uh, percentages that were that were in there for upkeep of the cultists, but that that was the general rule in the in the Torah. But but we digress. Okay, um, they did not torture, uh, at least. Well, Genghis Khan. Yeah, Genghis Khan did not did not his like his sons much. his sons uh, started doing it. Um, and I mean, yeah, they didn't torture, but they, they, they killed you. So, um, there was sometimes by kicking you to death, by wrapping you up in a, uh, in a a carpet, that was the noble way to go. That was, you know, better than, than, you know, being beheaded or whatever. Cause you know, then you wouldn't have bloodshed. So you're wrapped up in a carpet and you're kicked to death and that's a good way to go. Or, or put under floorboards when there's a party Uh, to be stomped to death. Yeah. Um, that's that's a nice way to go. There was a relatively... The relative freedom of religion. Yeah, which is a common feature of pretty much every empire in history. Uh, you know, every major empire, uh, you know, up to that point, that was a common mm-hmm. feature. But we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, amnesty for those who repented. And uh, like I mentioned before, women, women leaders. One thing that was interesting, though, was was even uh, Jack Weatherford makes a point that even those who called themselves Christians didn't identify with that as their primary primary identification. They were still Mongols first. I wonder how he knows Christian that. Second, yeah, that's one of those things where I go, okay, so how exactly are you assessing that? Yeah, it sounds it sounds like the kind of again, this is the value kind of judgment where it's like. Eh, well, first of all, you're you're assessing how they identified themselves, you know, sort of internally. That's hard, if not impossible. And secondly, um, that sounds like the sort of thing that many people would prefer in the modern world. So I'm I'm, I'm skeptical. Yeah. Um, the Mongol court celebrated celebrated Christmas. That was something I learned, and <laughs> just would have been the last thing I would have ever thought that uh, the Mongol court would have celebrated. Um, there a lot of Assyrian Christians there. Yeah. Uh, Weatherford says that Europe gained the most from the Mongols because they were not directly attacked yet, uh, especially, uh, I mean, Western Europe, uh, but they they benefited, benefited from a lot of the cultural advancements. Well, the, the biggest benefit that Europe got from the Mongols was that the Mongols basically destroyed the height of Muslim civilization. Yeah. So, I mean, you got to remember that this is all coming right on the heels of, and actually during the continued crusades, but this is, you know, right after like the third crusade, right? So, uh, you know, all of this stuff is, is on the heels of that. And, and the reason that Europe went into the crusades to begin with, Thomas Madden has some excellent stuff on this. The reason Europe went into the crusades to begin with is that Europe was being very much threatened. They were basically, if you look at a map of the world of that of the of the ancient Mediterranean or I, no, not the ancient but of the uh, of uh, medieval Mediter- the medieval Mediterranean, you see that previously Christian lands were becoming thoroughly Islamic over you know re- very rapidly, and you know Muslims had crossed over into into the Iberian Peninsula into Spain modern day Spain and Portugal, and you know they were they they had gotten within uh, about a hundred and what, 125 miles of uh, Constantinople in, in Anatolia. And it looks like two giant arms about to engulf Europe, which was technologically inferior to, to the Muslim world at that time. 
uh, and inferior in a lot of ways. And so they, at that point, sort of launched out as, we'd better do this now or we're going to disappear. Because the, the, the Muslim world was stronger. And the Crusades, you know, they didn't succeed in really retaining a foothold in the, in, in the, uh, in the Holy Land. But they did more or less succeed in, in pushing back uh, the boundaries so that, you know, the Iberian was once again under, a, uh, under Christendom, under, uh, uh, you know, the, the Muslim, Muslim, most Muslims had uh, been expelled, the, the Moors had been expelled from there. So all this is happening right before, right, right before what happens with Genghis Khan, and then all of a sudden, Genghis Khan sweeps down and the Muslims take the brunt of it in this area of the world. And so now, all of a sudden, all of that, all of the benefits of that technology and all that go to Western Europe and go to Europe in general without the threat of continued potential domination by the Muslim world that, that had been encroaching upon them. So, yeah, he is right that it benefited them, but he doesn't actually get to the thing that benefited them the most or doesn't emphasize it. It's not so much the cultural advancements that they benefited from. It's the comparative relative difference between where their civilization was to some of the others that the Mongols destroyed. <laughs> mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so do you want to go into to some of your uh, nitty gritty? Yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, we, we can continue down some of your list. I mean, one of the things okay. you got on your list is that the Mongols inspired fear by their speed and efficiency, not by cruelty. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that's worth noting. Um, and that kind of goes into the propaganda thing that you were mentioning. Right. But earlier. the thing, the other thing that really inspired fear was that they were pretty uh, pitiless when it came to the aristocracy. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this is something that, again, I think this is something Weatherford does get right. In Europe, generally speaking, the non-landowners, the non-aristocracy were regarded as pawns in the game to be basically thrown out there so that they can kill one another in service of the, of the landowners. And generally speaking, the aristocrats, you know, you, you even hear about this between aristocrats on both sides of the, of the Crusades, right? You know, you have uh, Salahuddin, uh, the, the, the man who, uh, who took back Jerusalem, uh, sends uh, when, 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 uh, Richard the Lionheart is is uh, is he gets a horse shot out from underneath him, or his horse is killed out from underneath him. Salahuddin sends a horse to, across to to him so he can continue to fight. Right, this is the sort of thing that you that you get, and you know this this chivalrous code among the aristocracy. Well, you know, lots of other people can just go and die. And the the, the Mongols turned that upside down, and they were like, well, why should we kill all the people who are you know living on the land? I mean, we'll we'll you know we. We'll do it if we have to, if they're not going to submit. But the people we're going to kill are the people who are going to resist us. And those are the people at the, at the top. So we'll just take all the aristocrats and we'll take the rulers and then we'll go execute all them. <laughs> and that's what really terrified these people. And these are the literate people. These are the people who shape the societies more than anybody. And they're terrified because they're realizing when these people come in, they don't just take you captive for ransom. They kill you. Yeah. But they, but they left the scholars, right? They would take the scholars because they could integrate them into their, into their, into their bureaucracy. Like, well, we're short on scholars. Can you join us? <laughs> but that, but that seems to be different than most other powers. No, not really. Because, it's, it's, it's no. more similar to, to the old Assyrian or Babylonian approach. So this is okay. going back to old classical imperial, 
uh, approaches. So it's not the European approach. It's not the Middle Ages approach. This is an older phenomenon. So he mentions... You know, in, in he says, Chinggis Khan, in his keen awareness of public attitudes and opinions, he also recognized that the common people cared little about what befell the idle rich. By killing aristocrats, the Mongols essentially decapitated the social system of their enemies and minimized future resistance. This is almost identical to ancient Assyrian policies. They would come in, and the first time they'd, they'd enter your, your land, they would just demand tribute. And if you paid tribute, then they'd, they'd leave. You're paying your taxes. In fact, we'll use your, that tribute to put good roads in and to make sure that you, your economics are built up and all this as a part of our, you know, on the fringe of our empire. That's great. You, you've come under our protection. But if you should happen to rebel against them, oh, well, then we'll come back and we're going to decapitate your society. We're going to execute all the, all, the, all the aristocracy. And then we'll set up, you know, the sort of middlemen and, make, and put some new aristocracy on and make sure that they're loyal to us. And then if they revolt and everybody does it, then we're going to have problems and we're going to do more. But that's how they okay. took it. And so this is very much what historical empires did. It's just that with the development of international, sort of a more international cosmopolitan way of thinking about things and... The, the the various aristocracy recognizing like what I really want is to maintain my place and I know you want to maintain your place so what we can do we're going to live by this code so that if I take you captive I'm just going to demand ransom and then likewise for you that's how what this eventually works up to because of how various you know how feudalism and these various things build up over the centuries it builds up into that and this is more of a return to to older stuff Okay. And I'm, I'm thinking more recent, recent wars. And I guess they, those were more ideological in nature to where the scholars were taken out first, like the Nazis, they go into Poland, they, right. they go into the universities, uh, the Mao, the communists, they, they take out all the scholars, uh, because that's a, that's a direct th- threat. Right. Well, again, that, that has to do with uh, their understanding of the importance of public opinions and attitudes. And they recognize that these scholars are the ones who are going to shape it. Mm-hmm. And that those scholars are not likely to be, be willing to join their regimes. And so they're just going to stamp out and exterminate their uh, most dangerous opponents, which is the people who hold the pen. Whereas yeah. for Chinggis Khan, if you would be willing to, to, to write stuff that would actually help his cause, or if you'd be willing to join the bureaucracy, then more, the more the merrier. They're yeah. precisely the kind of person we need. Yeah. So it, again, they're, they're both recognizing the importance of the scholars, but it's just a matter of what the function of the scholars would be in these, in these various things. Yeah. Uh, one other thing that stuck out to me was, was um, and, and they probably weren't, you know, totally new things, but just the, the, the changes that Chengis made, especially the cultural changes uh, with, with family being so huge, he, he put more of an emphasis on, on skill level and, and even you know, with, with the people he conquered, uh, having them be close to him. That was a direct, um, a directly against kind of the cultural no- norms for him. The, uh, one other thing that I thought was amazing is that the law applied to Chinggis the same way it applied to, to others. Right. Which he of course treats as though this is, he says, I'll, I'll read the quote there. Uh, he says, um, uh, in probably the first, uh, let's, no, I'm sorry. He says, uh, 
Enforcement of the law and the responsibility to abide by it began at the highest level with the Khan himself. In this manner, Chinggis Khan had proclaimed the supremacy of the rule of law over any individual, even the sovereign. By subjugating the ruler to, to the law, he achieved something that no other civilization had yet accomplished. <sighs> Unlike many civilizations, and most particularly Western Europe, where monarchs ruled by the will of God and reigned above the law, Chinggis Khan made it clear that his great law applied as strictly to rulers as anyone else. His descendants proved able, unable to, or proved able to abide by this rule for only about 50 years after his death before they discarded it. Well, yet again, another historical exaggeration. But go ahead and say what you were going to say first, because I, I don't think you're, you're going to point out that this was an innovation. I think this is, a, this is a worthwhile thing to point out, just he treats it as an innovation. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and not that it's an innovation, but that, uh, that for somebody to have that much power and to, to still put himself under the law, that, that, that's the thing that was was interesting and, and really amazing to me that um, that someone would do that. But of course, there are parallels to this thousands of years earlier. For example, yeah. in ancient Israel, where the distinguishing characteristic of David, for example, is precisely that when he is confronted by his own by a member of his own court and told, God is not happy with what you have done, you have broken the law, and so on, David does not respond by having this man executed. He responds by saying, I have sinned, and yeah. addresses that. So we see that that's a major theme throughout the, you know, the, the biblical stories, approximately 2,000 years before Chinggis Khan in the Hebrew Bible. And then you see it, the same stuff, even in, he's pointing to Western Europe and saying, well, in Western Europe, it wasn't this case. Uh, try telling that to all these monarchs who are constantly under the uh, the uh, the opprobrium of the church of the of the Catholic Church before the uh, before the the Protestant Reformation, and you can actually trace, by the way, uh, where the where where the uh, Protestantism became popular in part by how much the various uh, lords of Europe stood to gain economically by adopting it. <laughs> because of the how much land the church held in those areas and various things. But in Europe, you did have, even though you had the Holy Roman Empire that was kind of, the Pope in some cases ruled in ways that were iffy in terms of whether they were under the law or over it. Generally speaking, the secular authorities of Europe regarded themselves as, yes, reigning, ruling by the will of God, which Genghis Khan, by the way, through the Hurultai uh, that he has set up in the the the, the ceremony there, it's under the the uh, the it's by the will of God that he presents his own rule. But these monarchs rule by the will of God, but of course they could be excommunicated, which then threatens their rule. And there's all sorts of ecclesiastical power that threatens so uh, secular power in Europe. And the, of course, the ecclesiastical power also has to negotiate the secular power. So there is this dynamic, even in Europe. And so, you know, this is not an unusual thing. And it's not, it, it's not, it's certainly not as Weatherford portrays it the first time where he says, uh, you know, this is, uh, uh, he says something no other civilization had yet accomplished. That's ludicrous. 
Well, and wasn't was it with Daniel and the lion's den? Wasn't it, was it Darius? Yeah, Darius is. Yeah, the the Persian Ooh. kings were also under their own laws. He, he couldn't he couldn't go against the law that he had written. Yeah, so you did have that phenomenon as well. Although that 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 story is of course a, that's a that's more of a novella than than a historical story, but. Uh, but yeah, that, that, that's working on that, that same concept. I, I would still just assume that it's probably a rare thing. If, if someone has absolute power to place himself under to law, place himself yeah. under law, because yeah. that could, that could get, uh, that could make things difficult rather quickly. Yeah. I think, I think it is rare. I think that that's one of the things that we, you know, when you look at, uh, at ancient Israel, they are one of they, that might be the first place we have any evidence of it. Because you go to you know to the pharaohs of Egypt and they are ruling as gods, mm-hmm. you know you have you know the various rulers of of various empires and they have basically the capacity to do whatever they wish, and we see a different dynamic there in 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 ancient Israel and that that sort of works out from there, uh, in the Abrahamic religions and works its way uh, through the world to some degree, though again with lots of as with Genghis Khan's descendants. It winds up being a difficult sort of thing to you know keep in practice because there's yeah. always the various dynamics of power. Uh, I thought, by the way, I, I didn't know that the phrase "hooray" or this the, the word "hooray" was Mongolian. I don't. Did you notice yeah, that? Yeah, me either. No. You know, hooray! That it's a Mongolian praise. Huh. I, I had no idea, which is fascinating to me. That's, that's interesting. Um, yeah. And then uh, another place, by the way, where he says, in probably the first law of its kind anywhere in the world, Chinggis Khan decreed complete and total religious freedom for everyone. (sighs) Although he continued to worship the spirits of his homeland, he did not permit them to be used as a national cult. Well, you know, of course, there was exactly that kind of law in Persia, the Persian Empire, you know, 2,000 years earlier. In the Roman Empire, there was religious freedom for everyone. You could worship whichever gods. As long as it didn't threaten the, the empire itself, you could worship however and whoever you wanted. Don't commit crimes while doing so, and don't threaten the empire, but as long as you don't do those things, you can worship however and whoever you want. Be good to participate in the, in the, the local rituals and so on, you know, because those are civic, you know, n- civic uh, things, but basically everybody is is given free leeway that's how those empires ruled this is the normal state of affairs in historical empires that cover lots of different cultures because here's the thing about empires they're invading other peoples and it's in their best interest to make sure that those other peoples don't constantly revolt against them and so the best thing possible is to say you know what Unless you really need us to come in and solve stuff, go ahead and do things however you want. Just make sure you pay your taxes and we're good. That's how things have tended to work historically. There have been exceptions, but generally speaking, that's how that's worked. So this is not the first law of its kind. It just happens to be the way things tended to go. Now, in national circumstances, rather than in empires that cover multiple nations... Many nations tend to have one religion and be pretty intolerant of other options. And there's the distinction. But again, this is where Weatherford is an anthropologist and not a historian, and his understanding of where a lot of this stuff was before the Mongols is really poor. Well, one thing the Mongols did 
and this ties in with one of our other books of the things they carried. <laughs> the Mongols did not travel in a caravan. They each man carried precisely what he needed, but nothing more. And each man was responsible for getting his own food too, correct? Yeah, yeah, as far as we as far as we know. So that that will increase your speed quite a bit if uh if you don't have all these carts following you with food and <laughs> and all sorts of stuff, but that's a really amazing um innovation too, I guess. I mean, I'm I, I would assume a, a lot of people had done that before that, but to have such a a strong army and to do that, it's, it seems like part of, part of what inspired fear was, was just their speed, um, in, in, a a group of people, not, not even being able to contemplate that an army would reach them in such a short time. So that was one thing that they had going for them. That was, that was really interesting to read about. And then, uh, the last, uh, last few other items were, one was, that uh, made in China is not a recent phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, China was a uh, was a was a uh, manufacturing powerhouse from ancient times and remains so. You know, I just wanted to read a uh, a, a, a part of a, a paragraph in in that section by responding to the needs of a universal market. The Mongol workshops in China eventually were producing not merely traditional Chinese crafts of porcelains and silks for the world market, but adding entirely new items for specialized markets, including the manufacture of images of the Madonna and the Christ child carved in ivory and exported to Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Made in China in 1300. Yeah. So that was... Well, that was, uh, well I mean, that that's really why you have fancy China, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. Dish, dishware from fine China, from China, right? It's dishes from China that become called... They, they get called China. Because, yeah. you know, it goes all the way back to that stuff. Yeah. But the way it's presented now is, is, is this is all a recent phenomenon. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so the, the other thing that yeah, I Everything's was, a recent phenomenon. No, nothing's new under the sun. Yeah. The, uh, another thing I thought was cool is that the Mongol en, uh, envoy met with Edward I of Eng the King of England. Longshanks. Who was the, the, the Longshanks, the ruthless king of uh, the Braveheart movie. Um, so... Just yeah. kind of, kind of interesting. I mean, I've, I've read a lot more about that and studied more about that, and to to see time time wise when these things were happening, uh, that uh, Edward the First would have met with uh, a Mongol envoy. That was that was pretty cool. Yeah, another. Uh, let's see, um, another one that I liked here. Uh, the 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 uh, the uh, hurultai that they had the the, the gathering to uh, establish the, you know, the, the, the power of the Khan and agree that this person was, was uh, set aside as ruler. This reminds me so much, the way that they did this reminds me so much of the way that they anointed kings in ancient Israel. And again, this is part of my background in terms of where, I'm, where, where I have uh, uh, you know, points of reference. But it's there's so many parallels to you know the the, the twelve the, the representatives of the twelve tribes meeting together at like Shechem or someplace, and then you know the tribes that show up they decide to you know either accept the king's rule or as in the case of Rehoboam they say no to your tents Israel we're not gonna we're not gonna serve this guy, 
And it sounds just like it. And then beyond that, I, lo- I thought it was fascinating that according to the secret history, the, the, the speaker uh, who you know, was, was declaring uh, Genghis Khan to be the great Khan, he admonishes him at the moment of his uh, inauguration that whatever authority of power he had given him was derived from heaven and that God would not fail to bless and prosper his designs if he governed his subjects well and justly but that on the contrary, he would render himself miserable if he abused that power. And it's so reminiscent, again, of, of a lot of the, uh, of some of the stuff that we see in the Hebrew Bible in terms of, uh, you know, if you, it, you know, it, the, the words to David of, if you will uh, keep my commands and my statutes, then, you know, then I will, uh, I will be with you and, and you're, you know, you will have an everlasting kingdom, etc. But if your children, if your sons do not, uh, heed my laws and my statutes, then, etc. So it it sound it's exactly like that sort of thing. I found a lot of these parallels, and and just in the ways that there was some level of democracy in this and the process of it in a tribal community, there were a lot of parallels there that were were really interesting. Yeah. Well, any anything else? I've got one one go, other item, but yeah, that go kind your, of your goes into my here. conclusion. Yeah, go with okay. your big item here. I'm, I'm, I'm basically done with my nitty gritty stuff. Oh, one, I guess one last thing I found okay. also the little datum about the, uh, the use of songs to, uh, to pass along laws and also, uh, military orders since they were all illiterate, but they would use, you know, a common melody. And so it was easy to remember because it would be like memorizing a new verse to a song you already knew. That right there, that, that's exactly how so many of these societies have worked throughout history. And again, it, it, it's, it's precisely, and the way he puts it, I think, is, is, as an anthropologist in this case, it's really, really well done, that section. I thought that was uh, well done and explains a lot of how ancient peoples and their, uh, their histories were remembered uh, in various ways and how uh, you know, different uh, songs and so on served the served as the way to to preserve everything because you know you you can remember it if you know the tune mm-hmm. yeah I, I thought that was really cool um so i'll i'll uh, go into the the my main conclusions for the book uh i i read the book and then immediately after reading it i purchased the dan carlin podcast series of the wrath of wrath of the cons and, um, which you'd already those listened you, to before as I yeah, recall. Yeah. Um, and, uh, if you're not familiar with Dan Carlin, he basically reads just tons of books and then, uh, we'll just give like a four hour podcast about uh, a particular topic. If but you're then not listening, if you're not familiar with Dan Carlin, stop listening to our podcast for yeah, the moment. Yeah, and go back and yeah. listen to some of Dan Carlin's <laughs> just, uh, hardcore history stuff, please. We keep telling people not to listen to our podcast. It's it's great. Um, <laughs> humility, humility. But yeah, he's he's awesome. That, you know. Yeah, but for the Wrath of the Cons, he actually did like uh, four, I think four episodes, and and each of them are are quite long. It's it's multiple audiobooks. Yeah. So go uh, like we've said before. Use Overcast for your podcast, and then uh, jack up the speed to like two and a half times and do the smart speed on overcast and that that uh that makes it go by a lot faster but carlin uh having read a a lot of books about the the mongols he i think he has a much more balanced approach i mean this i the chingis khan and the making of the modern world 
to me was almost like reading Kevin Kelly's book, The Inevitable. Like it's just so mm-hmm. optimistic about everything. Uh, Kevin Kelly is obviously about the future, but um, Jack Weatherford's here about the the Mongols. You, you, you almost forget that millions and millions of people died. <laughs> I mean, it's like, and that's not even Europe, including Europe, the, the Black Plague, which you know is what ended Mongol expansion as much as anything. Yeah, um, and Mongol power. Yeah, which that that was interesting to learn about as well. Um, so. To just kind of gloss over the fact that entire civilizations were wiped out, that millions and millions of people killed, but, well, Western Europe benefited. Oh, and then uh, Cengiz's sons were in these different parts of the world, and, you know, we can trace the the powers from then on uh, from that. And, and, like, all these advances in trade and, and innovations that, that we saw— but millions and millions of people died. And that's the thing Dan Collins just keeps, keeps bringing back and, and, and kind of asks the question, how does one balance the good coming out of the Mongol Empire with the sheer number of dead? And, and, and Carlin asks the question, are, are we going to see a book like this in three, four hundred years about the Nazis? I mean, that, that's what it would be like to people that lived in this time or say that about Stalin, out. who might be a, a better example yeah. there. I don't think we'll see it about the Nazis, partly because they didn't win. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But Stalin and them, they did win, and they had a large impact on a, on a century. And so maybe there, yeah. you know, is it possible that there could be somebody like, well, what did we benefit from? Although, you know, you could make the case that in 300 years, people will be saying, oh, you know, all the scientific stuff we learned because the Nazis were willing to torture and kill people to find that stuff out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe maybe Carlin has a point there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, very, very good question to, to balance with with this book, I thought very good series to balance with this book and actually i would listen to that series before i would before i would read this book although again i I think that there's some value to the book in terms of how it gets us to think about certain things so if you understand that not all the history that he's giving here is accurate and and you take that with a grain of salt and you want to you you want something that's going to flex the way you think in a lot of ways then yeah i think there's some benefit to potentially reading this book so you know but but again, I would I would start with Dan Carlin's Wrath of the Cons before before this one. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, Dan Carlin did not have this book listed in his his books that he read. It was because Carlin read histories, yeah. <laughs> Rather than uh, you know fluff propaganda pieces uh, by you know anthropologists, which you know again it is it, it is what it is it, it is good in, in 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 as much as it's that as long as you're not confusing it with a with a with a, a sober history with you know that that is really concerned with making sure it gets uh the the data the data correct then you know it, it's, it's a worthwhile read mm-hmm. all right you want to close this out yeah why not so i guess that is a good place to wrap up um that is going to do it for us today. Now, before we get out of here, a uh, reminder, you can also follow along with us at booksoftitans.com. You can uh, interact with us on Twitter or Instagram at Books of Titans. And if you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to this podcast. You can find all of our past episodes, the good, the maybe less good, some of which uh, we're, we're still struggling with uh, making sure that we got our uh, audio audio levels right. Uh, 
through Apple Podcasts, the Android Marketplace, your podcast manager of choice. If you are enjoying this podcast, if there's an episode you're enjoying, please share it on social media, share it with friends. Uh, and if you're enjoying us, please give us give us five star ratings on Apple Podcasts and and uh, through you know Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Share your favorite episodes. We'll be back soon to discuss the next book, which will be Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me, by Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson. On behalf of Eric Rostad, I'm Jason Staples, and this has been the Books of Titans podcast. Keep reading, keep listening, keep improving, and keep it real. <laughs>